What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday. We are back on the DeQuisto Series podcast. And today, we got for you the first Roadshow Q&A of the 2022 circuit. We are in Allisonia, Virginia, and we got an awesome convo here between myself, Jacob Leishan, Zach Robb, and a special guest of the region, Nathan Killen. Now, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of breakdown on these guys, just a bit of context in case you don't know them. Jacob Leishan is originally from Florida. He now lives in North Carolina, but frequently hunts that southeastern part of the country, also makes his way to the Midwest. Zach Robb is from Virginia, has successfully harvested many bucks in his home state and hunts right outside of the Shenandoah National Forest. Nathan Killen, the mountain hunter himself, specifically known for his consistent success with the trad bow in the mountains of Virginia and even West Virginia, I believe. All you guys know me, know where I'm from. I'm a Midwest guy, cut my teeth here and hunt a lot of farm country, swamp, flatlands. And I branch out from this area. I was particularly excited about this event and this roadshow Q&A because I knew it would give me a chance to sort of dissect the mountain style and identify the similarities between what I do here in the Midwest when I get into hilly situations or when I, you know, gravitate further south and what my game plan is to get a hold of these deer. And just as I thought, there was remarkably a lot of similarities. I think you guys will get a lot out of this episode. And if you are a guy hunting the southeast, the northeast, any of these mountainous terrain areas, you're going to want to tune into this. Before we dive right in, I want to take a second to thank all the Roadshow sponsors. Without them, these events wouldn't be possible. And we appreciate so much the love that these guys have shown for the show, for the circuit, for the speakers. You got Vortex Optics, Onyx Mapping Systems, Lone Wolf Custom Gear, XOP Outdoors, Hoyt Archery, Womo Outdoors, and of course, your DeQuisto Series podcast. Forewarning, I apologize. At a few points during this podcast, we do have a little excessive wind in the mics, but we're outside. We're talking amongst 70 people, so keep that in mind, and I hope you guys enjoy. There you have it, Matt. Really getting jacked up. Plain and simple. The beard is just pre-growth, so summertime beard growth, and then season, it's just mustache. You fuel all that energy into just the kill stash. Yep. <laughs> it does, you know, it's not, it's not bullshit. Just... <laughs> Cody's lived the lived the stash life before. Oh yeah, Killed bigger bucks then too. I don't think. Two hundred is pretty cool. Yeah, but <laughs> Cody killed one that fully made him have to stop using a compound. So um, yeah. he had to make. I I am doing the transition the transition to traditional. Um, I've always wanted to do it, man. I've been fascinated by the concept of traditional archery forever, um, and. Uh, and this would be kind of cool, maybe touch base on, on this briefly, but yeah, the idea and the concept behind instinctive shooting and all that stuff is just, uh, it, to me it's fascinating that your mind can pick that up and, and you know, become fluid 
So that's what I'm that's what I'm after next. That's the next thing. So um, right, real quick about that. before we get officially started, anything from the cameraman that we need? What? <laughs> I was about to say. I think I heard cameraman yell something from back there. It look. It says it's on. Now? How about now? Is it good? Hello? Good? Good? Oh. Good? All right. Seventy percent of podcasting is technical difficulties. Yeah. Well, so. this isn't technically the podcast. No, I this mean is, it might as well be. This is the. Twenty percent uh, is rain. All right, so. It's raining. No, no, no. no We're good right now. Okay. Shut right. up. We can't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Dang. All right. All right. Before let's do let's so, let's get a podcast intro. Like, let's get a oorah or something from you guys too. Like, let them give us a shout that they're on a podcast. Yeah. All right, man. Let's hear something. So, um, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DeQuisto Series podcast. We are live today at the first Mobile Hunter Roadshow event in Alisonia, Virginia. We got an awesome turnout. Let's hear it. Let's hear it, everybody. That was that was beautiful. Um, so we got a bunch of awesome questions here. We got mountain specifics. We have uh, a lot of tactic and gear stuff. So we're just going to dive right into this. We have, I'm going to start on the right. We got uh, Jacob Leishen, um, originally from Florida, hunts North Carolina, uh, East Coast guy, gets to the Midwest as well. We got Zach Robb, um, Virginia, right? Yep. Virginia, yep. Virginia, Virginia. Um, Nathan Killen, West Virginia? Virginia. 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 All right, so we got a lot of locals. Got a lot of mountain strategy. Uh, myself, um, you know me, Midwest guy. Um, so we're going to see how that pertains to some of these uh, strategies out here and how, how they differ. You guys ready to rock? We're ready to rock. All right, so I'm going to start off with just the, some of these questions. So right off the bat, we got a specific kind of mountain strategy. So I primarily hunt east of Richmond, Virginia. What are some recommended strategies and tactics for hunting older growth pine stands where the land is very similar acre to acre. You guys want to start with this one or? I feel like that's probably, that'd probably be the, uh, so that that might make sense mostly for me to answer. I mean, I don't know if you're hunting, if you guys are hunting much flatland, but so where I hunt in central North Carolina it is very similar to that. So um, what we deal with is super monotonous timber, a lot of big, like thick pine stands they range anywhere in you know six to eight years old to giant mature pines um, that are just vast you can see forever below the bottom of them so what what I like to do when we're dealing with that is first and foremost I'm looking for pressure so because everything is so monotonous the points that people are going to are typically pretty pretty tied into like how far they can walk to where their access points are even more so than normal so they're they're specifically focusing on you know what's the easiest route that they can get to where can they see everything and then down like in north carolina we're in at georgia and alabama you're really hunting like smz's which are stream management zones if you've heard that on other podcasts before talked about you know kind of in the more flatland settings those are basically areas that are dedicated by the state where there's a waterway or some sort of a lowland area that you, you get that habitat edge change and that's what I'm going to focus on is like where those big pines and those, that big monotonous timber hits that transition. Um, and then really try to key in on where bedding is off of that. So if that's, if you have a big stand of, let's say 20 year old pines that butts up to a stand of eight year old pines, and then there's an SMZ that runs through it. I'm going to look at that, that three-way transition 
because the more different habitat types that come together, the better the opportunity is for you to be successful. And I think that's the same, you know, I would kick it over, you know, to the mountain guys too, because I know that Nathan does that with laurel thickets and other things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I would think the only difference between hunting here versus there is just the difference in elevation. Yep. You know, because you're still looking for those transitions and uh, how they tie into uh, topographic features, whether they're two foot high or a thousand foot high, you know, you're still going to have topographic features in those type of places. And uh, to me, it, just learning to recognize how deer use those transitions and uh, the t topography too, and obviously the more transitions, topography you have coming into one type of spot, uh, you're going to have more traffic. And that's basically what I would probably look for is more of both in, in certain type of areas. So I think, I think that the best way to answer that question is by saying that no matter where you are, whether you're in Richmond or you're in the mountains, I think people like to overcomplicate it. And, and ultimately what you're doing is you're looking for the same type of things, no matter whether you're hunting in the Midwest or whether you're hunting back East, like the foliage or the type of tree or the, the land structure might be different, but ultimately it's the same thing. You're looking for hard transitions, habitat change, core bedding, and then you're just kind of going to relate all that in with, you know, your sense of being an outdoorsman and what you know looks right and, and determines a lot of traffic in your area. Some areas... Like where I hunt, we have 40 deer a square mile. So, you know, there's a lot of traffic. You get beat down trails and you got to know how to manage that. Whereas um, some of the places that Nathan hunts might not have a lot of deer per square mile because it's big, remote, giant timber. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the strategy is not, like you mentioned, the strategy is not much different based on location. It's just the effort that one location takes over another. I mean, there's no doubt that hiking up mountains you know, is more strenuous and more of a pain in the ass than, um, you know, walking flat ground. But when, you know, I correlate hunting Southern Ohio where the deer population was super like on the Kentucky border, big Hills like this. Um, and the deer population is probably like one or two per square mile and finding deer down there. Um, just took, I just, I anticipated it taking 10 times as long because I had to walk 10 times as much ground but that was the exact same strategy I would use in northern Wisconsin, Wisconsin, in flat swamp marsh. Like, or, or, you know what I mean? So even though we're not in the, now, when it comes to hunting those deer, when I find them, then I start, have to start thinking differently with the hills and the um, uh, thermals and stuff like that. But as far as locating those, um, it, you know, it's a lot of times it, it's, a, it's a time. It takes, it takes time. You've got to put the miles on. Um, be constantly looking at new areas and and them deer move to like up i know up there in my perspective because i read this question it says you know stuff similar acre to acre up there it's i mean you could drive on the interstate for 60 70 miles and it's literally like you're in the, you're looking at the exact same thing and it's just flat marsh uh tall pines and um you know very similar to kind of the east coast be without the mountains i guess like as far as the timber goes um and it's just you know you got to do a lot of homework now i just i just like the boots on the ground aspect of it and um i have the mentality too if you walk enough you'll find you'll find deer um so i don't i don't do a whole we'll get into this in a mapping section i do keep in i do uh keep an eye out for transition and stuff like that 
definitely take that into account but sometimes you just got to push deep um and just start systematically canceling out areas you know usually if you it's so overwhelming out here because if you if you look out the back and you say okay i need to scout that let's say that's all public ground it's like oh man okay like well there's a lot going on you know come at make a plan and execute that plan so it's just like a to-do list that's uh 10 pages long it's so overwhelming until you start knocking out one at a time so i think it's important to keep that in mind um and just start somewhere but consistent effort um in finding those deer and finding that deer sign and sometimes you know it can be a blessing to have not a lot of deer sign because when you find it it's like game on you know versus trying to weed through a heavy uh, a higher population of deer to get the one you're after um what would you say uh, along this question but nathan how how much time would you say you spend on the hunt for spots not hunting like compared like comparatively oh that's a lot more yeah. time uh scouting than hunting yep uh, for sure because you know if you, especially if you include winter you know in spring yep you know because i you know during a general uh winter springtime i will put get, depends on how much time i have available but anywhere from 100 to 100 or uh, 200 miles on you know shed hunting and stuff and scouting and that's that's a lot of uh you know and of course during hunting season too you know especially early season you know i'm uh doing more scouting than hunting then too because i'm trying to relocate the bucks that uh, i had you know Wind. found and uh later in season um it would probably be more hunting than than scouting because by then i already know where the deer are going to be you know so how much stake do you put in the sheds locations of sheds in the mountains older age class bucks a lot Okay, okay, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah, because generally, and there's a gentleman here right back there. He knows as well as I do. We frequent some of the same places. And uh, and generally, older age class bucks, uh, if you can find his sheds, there's a, a high odds uh, chance of him being back in that same exact area. Because you, you know, I mean, once uh, older age class bucks, they get old, they get, uh, they really narrow down their core areas and and they don't vary very far from that yeah yeah now by us a lot of that starts to transition i feel onto the late season food sources and you know getting closer to the midwest and we got so much egg and then the later the year depending on the harshness of the winter and these frigid temperatures and you know negative 20 30 degrees um when it gets really nasty that's where i'll see a little bit of change and sometimes you get those bucks you know uh, you know, whether they got their, their core area, they might leave a little bit to get to that easy food. And that's what I was curious about mountains. So they got a lot more browse and forage <clears> up in these hills and it doesn't get as cold. So does that make them keep that, that more of a core and not have to leave elsewhere? Yeah. And I think that that's twofold because I think the reason that you guys see, uh, those, uh, light switches turned on whenever you have, uh, these super cold cold fronts come in is because you have the high quality food yep. so those deer yeah they know naturally yep. go to it whereas yep. around here we don't have that and the deer is better off uh, just holding up yep yep and uh, not really moving and as far as uh, buck core areas versus doe core areas in relation to food now around here acorns is king if you find acorns you're going to find the deer 
for the most part. But now some years you don't have acorns. And a lot of your older deer, uh, mature bucks, they even though there's no food there, you know, a lot of your does and stuff might move out of those type of areas in search of food. But a lot of your older age class bucks, they won't. Yeah. You know, it's just like humans. It's their spot, yeah. It's yeah. their spot, and it's just like humans. The does, they have their uh, fawns that they're looking after. Uh, and us guys, you know, a big buck, he's a bachelor. Yeah. He's just like us. We can make it on... Uh, beans and yeah. light bread yeah. Yeah. whereas the mama with the doe or the uh, the fawns they're looking for those uh, better food you know so you know that, that actually brings up a good point and i'm going to transition mm-hmm. into a question i've seen here because it correlates directly with this this line of um talking so um and this is where i'd like to okay so do you feel like bump and dump tactics translate to the train that we hunt here if so um uh, if not, would you suggest a similar method? And this is where I am a core believer that it does. Um, and I'm, you know, and Nathan's kind of what he's just talking actually almost kind of lends that it might even be better for areas like this. Now, in my uh, in my experience, um, from the little bit of hunting I've done in the mountains, um, I've gotten on multiple deer, and where I failed was not with the bump and dump tactic. I successfully found the deer, bumped him up, did what I would do normally, and I just couldn't nail the thermal game in because they were held up on these shelves and I was getting hard switches. So I ended up getting busted, but got within, you know, within compound shooting range um, of a couple deer uh, that I was wanting to take. So I would almost be willing to say that it it's the exact same game. You know, these deer hold up, like Nathan said, where they're holding up for a reason, whether it's in the Midwest whether it's down south, whether it's here, I think it's just a matter of playing that diff or making sure you can play it when you find it. Um, but so, you know, to answer that, and I would be curious to hear what you say. And there's there's a whole different or there's a few different aspects to come in on the whole bump and dump range. But the general concept, you got to find them, right? You got to find them. And I would think being in a situation in the mountains that you don't have these main food sources, like what better option than, and if you can't find the acorns, but you're happen to, you're walking ridges and all of a sudden you kick up a giant, well, that's a good sign. You know, I mean, at least you're, you're in the game. I mean, what would you say, Nathan? I've never tried the bump and dump uh, strategy like you guys do. Um, and the reason so, now I'm not saying that it won't work around here, but I think that maybe the reason that it works better for you guys is because some of your uh, areas, and I'm going to say Iowa, maybe not uh, northern Wisconsin, but like around here, you know, a buck's core area to me is going to be more like 200 acres. Yep. Whereas it might be in the Midwest, might be 30 or 40 acres. So it would probably work better in those 30 or 40 acres than it would in our. You know, because even though, you know, a lot of our mature bucks, they have a home range that might be two or three square miles, or it might be just one square mile. But the area that he spends most of his time in is probably going to be like two, three, maybe 400 acres. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and from year to year, that could change around a little bit. And I've seen that happen, but I've also seen bucks uh, pretty much stick to, you know, one general hollow or one general ridge or end of a mountain or something like that. And the reason I say that is because you can always go back there and find his sheds. 
and uh, so. Qu- question so, on that front. So how, <clears throat> if a buck, you know, and this is, you know, I'm not, I don't want to act like I'm, I've hunted in the mountains, but I'm not versed in hunting the mountains. I hunt primarily flatter, more just lower hilly terrain. So question for you, Nathan, um, or, or Zach, if a buck's home range is, let's say, you've got 200 acres or a two square mile home range and you know that he's working that how do you narrow down where his bedding is because you know in in flatter country i can pretty well figure out where he's going to be because their their core areas are tighter usually because it's easier for people to walk there or get there or maybe there's food closer you know but if it's 250 acres of just wide open timber you know, how do you pick which topography feature is the one you're going to go to based on where he's going to bed? Well, everybody's heard me talk about east-facing slopes. And uh, th- that's actually where I find most bucks in, in this type of country bedding. Matter of fact, there's one right there that we're looking at. And I've looked at that all day. And, and I guarantee <laughs> there's probably a buck bedding right there. But, uh, you know, they have everything working for them, but that's some of the first things that I start looking for, you know. And if obviously steeper terrain. They like steep country. And, uh, but... Um, Why do you think east? Why east? B- because slopes? most of our winds are primarily out of the west, you know, and uh, it, it just works for them. You know, and even if the wind uh, isn't coming out of the west, you know, a lot of times they'll still bed there. You know, that they, they, they might just be on the opposite side of the uh, uh, point or, or whatever, you know. But, uh, and also north faces. It, most of the time I find myself on a north, a east, or any combination of the two. I was going to ask about that because I think everybody talks about hunting south-facing slopes. But because of that, I, I would assume that there's more pressure on south-facing slopes because the the idea is just go to the south-facing slopes more sunlight it's warmer whereas the north-facing slopes not getting the pressure or maybe it's harder terrain i think that it's a personality thing i think it's because most of your doe family groups are over on the south-facing slopes a older more mature buck he wants to be by himself and that's where he finds solitude you know that the, something i was going to pull you in on you have talked to me about before about having bucks with different personalities Oh, that's a that's a that's a fact. There, there's um there's so much to be talked about about the temperament of a deer and every deer being different and the way they they do things. That's why I hate when people talk so much about constants because there is no constant. The only constant is that things are always different. Mm-hmm. That's the only constant you can count on. So even if you think you know something, um, like it, it's just like people. I can't predict what you're gonna do if I go push you to the ground. Just like, you know, I mean, we don't know. We're all wired differently. Our experiences, how we were raised, like, you know, it's that whole nurture thing, nature. You know, some of us are just built different. Um, I think deer are the same way, uh, you know, the way that they run. Now, there are general things that you'll find whitetails doing, like Nathan explained. It's just like the south facing. When you start getting by me and the temperatures are negative 30, they need, they want that sun. They need that sun. So you'll find all your sheds on those south facing slopes. They might not be, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Like, I, I come at it with the aspect of I never take too much stock in anything other than the fact that I need to know where a deer is to kill him, and when I find him, I'm as aggressive as I can. So, and that's why I rely so much on the bump and dump tactic in a different retrospect. So, and this is where I was going to come into Nathan's play on the, the bigger home ranges. So, um, I found myself that deer this year, it was, it was an egg country, but this deer 
was king shit, and he was running probably a, a square mile, right? So, you know, 600, like a 600-acre square, and he was kind of just checking on everything, and he'd bed in certain areas different days, and I correlate that to kind of the mountain thing, or upper northern Wisconsin. Like Nathan said, he's right, because, and even in Iowa, there's so many ridges on the bluffs, they don't just go to the same ridge and bed every day. They're like nomadic. There's a, there's a huge area of bluff country that there that is their home area that could be 200 acres like you said 400 acres it could be 50 acres it could be three acres i mean it, it, it that's what i mean it's always different um i've kicked up giants that were held up in little briar patches behind old ladies houses that you couldn't pry them from there now this is you know midwest stuff and um but open country too no timber at all but what i'm getting at is um you know when you get in these these instances that's where I think it's more important to play. I've always been an advocate of not jumping on that bump and dump right away. Um, you know, Dad has a lot has had a lot of success in the past with dominant deer. That's a huge takeaway with this. Dominant deer do not want you in their stuff, and they'll come back, especially in those 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 heated times of. Um, Sorry, we're getting some hard interference with the wind. Um, especially on those heated times when bucks are getting squirrely, those deer don't want you you there. So as soon as they escape danger, they're thinking in their head, okay, I want to go make sure he's gone. Like you know, and they come in sly. So if as long as you set up right, technical difficulties. Yeah, let me just wait till I'm trying we're to block working, some of the wind. So as long as you set up right, you know they'll come back now, uh, or they'll come back and you'll get them killed. I've found very little luck on that because I think it's so much on the temperament of the deer and then in the area. What I think applies more to like where I was having the luck in Ohio was utilizing that information for a, a day and a half later assault. So, oh my God, is this horrible? <laughs> this is about the worst the quality wind. Um, sorry. The wind is crushing us right now, guys. It just picked up. I think there's something we could put right here, like a sail. Like a banner? <laughs> I mean, we got one right there. Um, it's just, it's just, there's not much we can do about it. All right, I think we, we go. just roll through it. Yeah. You got something? All right, we're just going to continue on until. Okay, so uh, with that being said, um, kick it, kick it a little bit later, right? So I've always, out of all the deer that I've killed in that fashion, it's always been, I believe that a deer will result to a different pattern. So, even you know let's say he's comfortable in that 200 acres he's going to go elsewhere probably be fine with that but that piece of information like there's that's gold knowing exactly where he was exactly where he was bedded take note on the the conditions when you bumped him and then try and reenact that at a later time so you know even like like sheds right so if if nathan's finds a set of sheds and and he identifies this eastern ridge that eastern ridge might be huge right so you're kind of like uh, maybe just you know trickling through um you know what i'll do is i'll go in there and shoot for an intentional bump sometimes to not even hunt it and only hunt it after the fact because um you know i just don't like you said with a with a giant core area it's highly unlikely that they'll come right back then and there if it's not the rut and if it's not a dominant deer and that's that's more along the lines of my primary tactic is to just make sure I know what I'm hunting because I got to know they're there for me to have any confidence. I'm not just going to go set up and hope for the best. Um, and that, that worked for me in 2020 
bumped a deer, um, lost permission on a property and had to go find a new property with a month to go. Uh, ended up bumping a big 10 pointer and made a mock scrape near his bed. And I was able to use that with the trail camera to gather some data that I could compare to historic data, you know, just those several weeks leading up to the season. Um, and that was able to get me like, when he was hitting that scrape, not only when, but what direction he was coming from and under what weather patterns or winds. And, and that ultimately ended up getting me on that deer, which I ended up bumping and dumping 10 minutes later after I set up. Um, now that, was that, that, was a, that was up in the mountains, right? Base of the mountain. Yeah, okay, the base yeah, of the mountain. Yeah, so not necessarily, you know, on, on these ridges or anything, but it was uh, in mountain country at the base of a mountain. Um, yeah, but, but everything was right. So Walking uh, in, the wind was in my favor. Some does could hear me coming up a, a knoll, and as I crested, they were leaving, and I could see him slipping through kind of, I guess he was, he was there to keep tabs on them as the rut was getting closer and closer. So, question, Nathan, how, how much, um, as far as visual sighting and just physical sign you're seeing, are you bumping a lot of deer? Like, is that a, that's a, is that a very rare occurrence? That's a very rare occurrence. Matter of fact, I can shed hunt all day and never jump a deer. Yep. Um, but, uh, now, what, do you think that's because they got the visual advantage in seeing you from so far off? Th- or? That could be part of it, and I'm, I'm not trying to be quiet either. Yeah, yeah, obviously. yeah, yeah, right. yeah. But, uh, I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll jump deer, but uh, it's just, you know, that's how low the deer density is. Yeah, but, yeah. But I've been uh, in our mountains around here. I've made a, uh, a five or six mile uh, loop with snow on the ground and never picked never up seen a, a track. Yeah. Never seen a track. Yeah, I was, I, that's what I was, I was curious because when I was, down in Ohio is coming to the same thing, just just miles and miles and miles, and not a, not you know not a fresh track anywhere, and it's just so scarce of deer. So I you know got me curious throughout a year of hunting, as you're scouting, you know you're obviously relying on that physical sign. Um, you know, is it more of a patience game then? I mean, are you confident when you find that you know your spot, and then it's like all right, I got to stick it out. Well, it changes from early season and progresses through the season. Early season, you know, I already know what bucks I'm hunting. And once season comes in, you know, generally, and I'm sure 90% of these guys can uh, contest or even hunters, you'll get these big deer on camera during the summer and then they're gone. Well, they're not actually gone. They're still there, but they shrink their core areas down so small that, if if you're not set up very very close to where they're going to be or have your cameras in just the right spot you'll never know they even exist so early season i'm going to uh, utilize you know the custom gear i'm going to be mobile and uh, up through toward the end of october and by then i pretty much you know uh, i'm going to use some historical knowledge you know as to where deer typically start showing up yep you know and uh, but through the rut, I'm going to be posted up in in just a handful of places, putting in my time. Yep. Okay. So so where on the ridge, you got a huge east facing slope or, or, or ridge side. Where are you gravitating first on the ridge? Are you are you that three quarter shelf type deal, or are you up up top? Uh, you know. It depends on the acorn crop, really. Okay. Because some right. you know sometimes the acorns are high, sometimes they're low. So come come November. 
or come, or come when you're now banking on more of a, a, a rut strategy, yeah. what's your go-to? Where do they cruise on these big ridges? Uh, just under the top. Just under the top, yeah, okay. just under the top. And I, I really, really like secondary ridges over on north sides. And uh, a lot of them will create a saddle, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and those are great spots. Um, the heads of hollows, you know, sometimes you'll have a really deep ravine come up toward the uh, ridge between two secondary ridges and it's really steep and nasty and thick there and just under the top it'll start gently yep, sloping yep. and if you look there'll be really good trails that come around the head of that you know it's it's so crazy because you, this is the same you know and i'm i'm intrigued so i'm asking questions but it's the same it's the same type of deal on a way smaller scale when you get to the midwest like it, it really is like instead of a mountain though you're looking at you know a glorified hill right the same thing happens with these these you know these washouts and these heads and um, you know there's these there's these power trails that run these ridges laterally and they, they like right at that at that flat over the steep cut um, there's a lot of a lot of definitely uh, similarities and that kind of so I, I asked that because coming into this next thing uh, coming into this next question so detailed um, morning entry and exit plans or strategies for mountain hunting so and then throughout the year so with that being said um is there a particular you know i guess way about do you got any knack to the to the access i guess is what yes. they're asking yes and i, I hate that you, you want to take it okay uh no no i always if possible try to uh, access from the bottom uh, because early morning thermals will kill you every time if you're dropping in from the top, uh, accessing into your stand from the top. Uh, trust me, I have learned that lesson way too many times. Yeah. You know, because and yeah. and that's an effort thing too. Because I think some people are like, oh, I can just pop up and get yeah. get a quarter of the way down and be good. When realistically, you're better off taking the long route. Yeah. You got to walk over more ground, but you're you know. It's if you have to uh, come in from the top, you're better off because uh, this is the way I uh, hunt one of my areas. You know, I have I hunt on the opposite side from my, uh, how I access it. You know, I, I gain a thousand feet and then I drop three or four hundred feet off on the other side. And at the bottom of those ridges is some farm country, so those deer are coming up to me. Uh, so what I do is before I crest over the top, I will make my way around the side of the mountain drop down another secondary ridge that I'm not hunting and you're always sacrificing something yep. you know and then I will cut across and uh, uh, to get to where I'm wanting to hunt that that's a very good point too so I always I always kind of make sure to make that point as well when I get um, access questions or strategy questions everybody wants the perfect ideal uh, passage or, or way to get into a spot to where they never spook a deer or they never leave scent on the ground it is not going to happen so quit wishing for that like, like he just said it's never going to be well i guess sometimes it could be but odds are 99 percent of the time you're going to like you said you're going to something is not going to be perfect but you got to get there to make it happen so you know i mean it, go the extra route to make it as as less invasive as you can but also, don't let it completely keep you out of there because then you're not going to, you know, you might, nothing might ever happen for you. I think it's important to remember, like, the basics of your thermals, too. And a lot of people forget, 
that in the morning before sunrise, your scent is still falling. So, like, a lot of guys like to, especially in, I've seen guys in big mountain country, they'll take a four-wheeler trail all the way up to the top, and then they'll walk that ridge, and then they'll walk down to their stand, and they're there an hour before light, and those deer are down in the bottom, and they're going to work up, just like Nathan said. Well, if you're sitting there for 30 or 45 minutes before light, your scent is falling down the mountain straight to them all the way until they're ready to leave, you know, until, and they, they know right where you are. So you're better off remembering that your thermals before that sun starts to rise are still falling. They're falling all night. And then as soon as that sun lifts, then they're lifting up and out of there, which is, I'm assuming, why you're circling around the way right. you are. Yeah, and, 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 you know, sometimes you just have to wait for conditions to get in your favor. Uh, back in 2019, the first buck that I killed that year, they was calling for a south wind, <clears throat> which was not favorable for where I was wanting to hunt. And uh, But it was supposed to switch and come out of the north about mid-morning. Well, I just hung out. I, I went ahead and got to the top of the mountain before it broke daylight, but I waited till I felt that uh, switch. And then I uh, cro- uh, crested the top and went around, and me and the buck met together down there. And if I'd have went before then, before it switched, I'd have never seen that deer. Yeah, that's actually kind of going into this next one here. Um, uh, when wind is unpredictable and swirling, do you prefer to use forecasted wind direction or thermals to choose where to set up? Um, I like to like use a forecasted wind direction to know what property I'm going to go to. Like I'll it, like for me, like if I hunt a lot of public, I'll be like, well, it says northwest today. But so it's like, I'm going to go to that property thinking it's going to be Northwest. But as I'm going in, like I mentioned it down there when we were doing the strategy discussion, I'm throwing milkweed or cotton swabs the entire time, like every hundred yards or 200 yards, because I've gone in and for a mile of my walk, it's been Northwest. And then I get 400 yards from my stand set and it's Northeast the entire time. And it's just circling or whipping or doing something. And I have to fully change what I'm doing to be able to set up or or set up in an entirely different spot um, because I'll, I would, I'll get beat. I'll get and beat Whenever, uh, and we battle um, swirling winds in the mountains all the time, everywhere you do. And I look for uh, compounding uh, terrain features to hunt during those times because you always have an option then. Uh, because in those type of areas, you have deer coming from multiple directions. So you can always set up somewhere around that uh, compounding feature and be able to catch deer and and not uh, blow your whole set. Matter of fact, that happened just this past fall in Ohio. Um, That buck that I killed up there was in a compounding terrain feature. I I got up three different trees the first evening that I went up. Uh, I got up the tree, the wind wasn't right, so I got down and I moved about 50 yards, went back up the tree, and it's, I was still, it was just still too much on the edge. And uh, so I come back down, I went probably about another 50 yards, but I was still within striking distance of, uh, or within one of the travel corridors that come through on that, uh, uh, what, what you had was four ridges come together in one spot. And uh, the next morning, I killed a, a good buck coming through there. So what time of year was that? It was, was uh, that, November was it? the 2nd or 3rd. Okay, so through there. just starting to, yeah. starting to get cruising <clears throat> there. But in those compounding terrain features, like I said, you can always work the wind. 
Whereas if you're hunting a, a single travel corridor, yeah, if the wind is no. wrong, you, you must abandon it, or In, I, I do anyway. Interesting, so on that terrain feeder, and I, I want to <clears throat> let Cody tell you about a place we hunted in Wisconsin on the Mississippi, because I think that's cool to talk about with the way the wind worked on that public spot. Oh, but, uh, but like, water Stupid. waterways Stupid. are super helpful when the wind is not your friend, especially if it's, like, I, I love, if I can get a, a morning where it's, like, below five or six miles an hour, even if it's just a real subtle breeze, I'll, I'll test fate if I've got like a creek or a river, like a river like this right next to me will just suck your scent with it. And you can get away with a lot more than you, you know, can otherwise. Yeah, you know, this is even a good example too of like how you could catch, you can catch them them deer too sometimes, I would be willing to bet. I mean, coming off these ridges down to areas like this that are more huntable um, versus having to hike all the way up there. I mean, I'm I'm sure it happens. Like you said, you, you seen a, you seen one running right in the bottom here last yep. year or something. And we hunted like we hunted. Um, yeah, they they come they so, come off this ridge. Go ahead. So I don't want to cut you off, but that brings up a good question. So by us, and you know Midwest and stuff, especially during the rut, you get these these uh, you know these bucks run, and some of the best things you can do are identify. I like to call them highways, um, and they're not highways, but they're highways for deer. And they're train tracks, they're small branches, uh, they're hedgerows out in the open country. Like, uh, I'm just curious, like... They run this fence line. Yeah, I was going to say, they would probably get down on this water, would they not, and just, just be ripping? Straight. In the bottoms? Or right. do they not, do they stay up top most of the time? No, right where that, I mean, like, you can just see right here where that bamboo is over there. That whole run of the creek, they run straight up yeah. and down the creek. But they dump off from up top. So, like, if I, if I had just got permission on this piece of property and I was looking at it, you know, it's fairly easy to find that trail but the chance like the change of pace from here would be like well where are they coming from because they're not just coming from over there they're coming from a number of places off this top so the reason they like right here is because <clears throat> you can't see it but that wall up there is a sheer rock face and where that as I'm sure Nathan could attest where that that hill right there drops off and then you get this kind of a I don't know whether it's a crack or it's kind of like a saddle but not really but it just presents an area where they can come off the top of that mountain, drop down to that creek, and that's and they just happen to cross right there near where the picnic tables are. But but like that's a they use that and then they'll run like these fence rows and they'll hop through here the same way they would in the Midwest because it's just a it's a physical thing that they can identify as going from one place to another. I've found a lot of success on along either natural borders like rivers and stuff like that or or rock faces. Um, as well as even highways or interstates has been, I mean, honestly huge to, to my success is finding that border that I know they're going to be traveling along. So do you hunt the bottoms uh, a lot at all or not no, really? I, I try not to because most of your buck baiting is going to be at elevation. So are you killing most of your deer in the morning or evening? Morning. Yeah, that's what I figured. Okay. Right. So even now, would you rather than opt out of an evening hunt? for the following morning then like is that kind of your forte or even in the evenings are you trying to catch them just below where their bed and get coming down uh, uh yeah and no are you an oppor opportunistic hunter like and when you can get out are you out or are you picking yeah, your absolutely. days okay all right yeah, yeah yeah so you're not like so in the evening you're still staying up top with them yes you're just trying to get on that transition yes because these bucks i've watched them i've watched them stand up in their bed yeah. and stand there and, and say this is 
30, 45 minutes before it gets yeah. dark. And just St- they'll stand up and, and not move yeah. nowhere. Just wait it they'll out. They'll just yeah. stand there, look around, listen. And once it gets dark, then they're like a train going through the woods. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah, they know. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, too, sometimes, you know, using the aggressive tactic, you know, sometimes bumping them, it takes a stubborn deer like that and makes them move. You know, so then all of a sudden, it's not his game anymore. He he stands up every night, and this is like I said, temperament and stuff too. But I, I did this in the uh, the, I hunted some cattails uh, or the border of this marsh, right? And I would hear the deer stand up every evening. I'd hear you can't see in there; it's all cattails, so thick. And I'm sitting in these little like uh, you know, tiny little water bottle sized trees and just waiting for them to come out. And I can hear them walking. I, they stand up and then they walk and they don't breach that line. And then the sun's going down, and it's dark and dark, and you're squinting like, man, like, you know they're right there, and you just can't get a vision. And then as soon as it's dark, they just walk, they step right out, and they know that. Um, so sometimes what I would do is actually get in there on my way in, you know, do a proper, like, on my entry, I would I would loop around them and make sure to bump them out of there. And I knew they were going to run back into the marsh. I didn't know where. But I the one thing I knew for certain was they weren't going to damn step out for me to kill them because it, it, every they do the same thing every day. That's what they do. So getting that deer on his feet, I think, disrupted. This is my take on it when I killed this buck. It disrupted his normal routine. It just got him on his feet, and I think he was in a different spot. Now, he didn't come out where I was hunting, but he came out like a hundred yards north, a uh, hundred yards north of there, but popped out like 15 minutes before dark. Is there a correlation? I think so. I think because, you know, you, you're just sometimes things like that can can give you the tactical advantage um, versus just playing their game and waiting them out. Because I've I've been in that boat so many times where I couldn't get any closer, um, and I was waiting and just and then you wait and wait and wait and then all of a sudden the rut kicks in and then they're gone. You never see them again and, and you end up losing all in all. So. Sometimes I think it's good to go for a, a hail mary. Uh, now in the mountains, it might that could that's a totally different story of what they're doing. Uh, but to Nathan's point, that's why you got to get in there on them and be where they're at. It's just like early season too. Most people don't like early season because they they think there's not action. There's action. It's just where they are, and you have to be there. It's not the type of action you're going to get in November. And it sounds it sounds obvious, but people correlate poor hunting with early season just because there's no cool deer activity i call it like there's no you know deer aren't running around huffing and puffing rubbing trees you know ripping down ridges and stuff they're in their core areas held up on acorns you know i mean just and you know surviving like you know they're they're there you know like you said they're, they're sitting on that ridge and you know he knows he's safe at night i'm sure that's why he starts kicking around but that's why i think something to that note is like why in-season scouting is so important from September on. Like, in the, you know, I know Nathan was talking a lot about um, about walking a lot in spring and winter, but I assume you, you walk a lot during season too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So spring and winter, all that does is helps me locate yeah. uh, the general area and hopefully put together uh, what I would feel like his home range is. Once season starts coming in, then I'm uh, trying to figure out where are the acorns going to be. Then I know where he's going, the direction he's going to start uh, heading, from yeah. where I found him, or you, or maybe uh, transition to. Do you utilize uh, like um, um, electronics? Like, do you do any cameras or anything like that? Oh yeah. Okay, so yeah. Are, are you 
how many cameras are you putting out in a given off season? Like a, I run eight to ten. Okay, all right. Yeah, not, not so not too any. crazy. You don't spread yourself thin. You you just yeah. And how how long? I'm just this is just curious on my end because coming to the mountains and not using cameras and not having any with me, it it, it was a process that. I could have, you know, took down from six days down to two. And then I could have had those things working for me while I was elsewhere. But how long are you keeping those cameras out before you're moving them? It depends on where I'm putting the camera. Okay. You know, if if I'm trying to, let's say I, I feel like I have a, a hunch that a buck is, is using or betting out on this point. Yep. And i have uh, uh, trying to confirm that by, putting the camera on his uh, entrance or exit trails or where I feel like that he's how he's going to get into there you know I may go and deploy that camera and uh, leave it for uh, a week or two weeks and then I'll go check it and uh, if he's there then you know I'll hunt but if not then I may pull that camera and, and put it somewhere else but then some cameras I'll put them on scrapes and just let them run the whole season yeah okay yeah you know so. yeah I have a similar approach to cameras yeah. and all where where I'm at and then out of season, just letting them soak then? Or, I mean, yeah. in those potential areas that you found in spring? I generally run mine year-round. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Okay. Uh, I'm going to jump. Um, I think we're getting some good information, right? I mean, this is good stuff. Um, all right. Here's, here's one interesting. So, I mainly hunt large strips of private land, areas that were formerly coal and strip mines. Everyone that knows these areas or that hunts these areas uh, baits with corn piles. Um what advice do you have for someone trying to hunt mobile and without baiting these areas, um, large mountains in eastern Kentucky? So, I mean, I don't know if you guys got anything. I can jump in and you guys can. Okay. I, I'm just going to say what I think. but I thought, so, nor- so North Carolina is big corn country. Everywhere on private land is corn country. There's corn bait piles everywhere. So, I, I mean, my opinion, and once again, this is just based on my opinion, people who, who are corn piling, I've never consistently seen in daylight like a big mature buck hitting a corn pile. They just don't they don't do it. They're too smart. Like they're not on that. So I I if I were to walk on a piece of private or even public property and people are baiting and there's a significant number of corn piles, it's just telling me where not to go. So like when I'm using like my maps, I'm just Xing off areas where I know he's not gonna be. So every time I find something, whether it's a corn pile or another tree stand, it's just like, I ah, know he's not there, you know? I would like to interject on that real quick. I, I fully understand where you're coming from, but I have to beg to differ because I think there is a huge percentage. The majority of people who are that type of hunter are not hunting bait correctly, and the deer are running circles around them. The deer are hitting that corn. The deer want the easy food. They are hitting the corn. Do not abandon that area. Hunt it smart. Get more mobile. And start to dissect. See, like, the worst thing you can do is especially, like, just so sometimes I know nobody wants to hunt in that area. And I find myself doing it, too. Like, oh, I don't want to. There's a bunch of guys with ladder stands and corn piles. But think about that. You know, a lot of these bucks, these, quote, unquote, nocturnal bucks, they're nocturnal coming to that pile because there's a guy trying to ambush them. And they know that because that guy is not playing the thermals and that guy's not set up properly. So if you find those areas, you can capitalize on those areas without being the one being baiting. Just start to start to work back from that bait and see, and especially if you start finding sign and tracks and, and you can jump a deer. I've, uh, um, that was actually how I found the one bump and dump experience where I almost sealed a deal in Ohio um, was 
I found a ladder stand with a corn pile at the base of this. I, I walked as far as I could, and I'm thinking nobody's going to get back here. And I found a four-wheeler trail with a corn pile and a ladder stand, and I'm like, okay, well, this is whatever. <laughs> so the, so I'm like, so I, you know, I'm, I was like kind of hanging my head, and I was like, I was about to back out. And I'm like, ah, you know, and then I started seeing, I started seeing little brush rubs and, you know, things like that. And I'm like, you know, and I, I, pick, I cut a good track up the ridge, and I'm like, okay, well, something, something's probably hitting this corn pile. So I looped around that, that little it was like a, you know, um, there's a peninsula. So it was a huge ridge and a peninsula came out and the, the bait was on the bottom of the peninsula. So I hooked around the backside and I started three quarters of the way up, uh, just right off the top flat. I just started running into massive rubs. I mean, like just bi- big rubs. I don't know what big rubs are, you know, are here typically, but these are, you know, thigh size tree, just, I mean, big, big indentions, old buck, multiple beds, same area just everything that i would look for in the midwest and i was like oh shit i was like this is it i was like okay he's here he's he's dumping around the backside hitting that bait at night coming around my problem was i was like how the fuck am i going to get up here in the dark because i was i almost killed myself like all this slate rock under the leaves and i was slipping everywhere and i you know i had good boots on and stuff but i ended up getting to that area late but there was a nice old mature 140 inch like heavy chocolate rack bedding on that side of the ridge and he ended up he but he straight up busted me i mean I, the, the wind the wind played me for a fool and um he got the best of me and i never seen him again but the point is that wasn't too far off a corn pile and that's why like i seen that i seen that question and i wanted to hit on that because sometimes it's worth it's at least worth scouting if you don't see anything you know then it's a different story and obviously if there's if it's if it's really riddled and it's just getting getting beat really hard but most of the time i think those people are looking for the easy route so they put the corn down and then there's usually there's a pile and there's a ladder stand right here yeah so a lot of times you know they're just not doing it right so i wouldn't wouldn't overlook them 100 percent um and 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 that what i was going to say from the original question too is uh so long story short use those piles to your advantage especially a guy like this this is your private piece, you know, and, you know, it sucks that they're pulling your deer off, but odds are you can find some sort of transition to capitalize going to that corn if they're hitting it. And if they're not, they're not. But, um, you know, uh, I know in Kansas that was a big, big thing too. There was, you know, everybody had piles of corn out. So it was kind of like, where do you, and sometimes it sucks. Sometimes they do pull them off your ground and they, and, and when they're doing it right, they, they stay over there if they're not pressured. But, I don't know if you guys get much corn around here or anything like that. Or, no, it's no. illegal here. Yeah, yeah. I think September you have to stop any kind of minerals or anything. Yeah, and that's – and honestly, I think it's <coughs> – I don't. oh, no, in Ohio you can. You can. In Ohio, but you can't bait on public ground. Yeah. You're so, not supposed so. to, but you find it everywhere. But I do think it's – like, so on coal country land, and I'm learning more about this. Um, you know, we got some buddies in West Virginia and Ohio that are hunting old, like, reclamation land. There's tons of, like, habitat diversity there as well. And a lot of those like baiting sites or where people are baiting are easy to get to spots. And what they're not doing is like what Co- I mean, it, it, Cody, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were basically essentially saying to like key in on where they may be bedding based off of that corn pile, you know, or just being open to the fact that there could be a deer bedding in the area even if there's pressure there. Not necessarily. Be- oh yeah, if yeah, but so what I found, especially because northern Wisconsin is good for that too, a deer will, I mean, in an evening go three three and a half miles to hit a to hit a corn pile so it doesn't mean that they're there but if you know they're hitting it 
that's a win because then all you have to do is find out how they're getting to it. So sometimes that can that can benefit you, even though you're not laying that corn. And and like I said, all that people don't give these deer enough credit. I've hunted so many farms that were that were pressured by so many guys or pieces of public ground or you know public private anything and the deer get your number very quick because we're so one-dimensional and like we, we think we know what we're doing and we all get stuck in our ways it doesn't take long for them to understand what's going on so the first time you try and ambush them wrong on a, on a pile of corn they, they know like these guys are getting cracked before these deer before they ever even know the deer's in the vicinity so not necessarily that I would check for bedding right around there. It could be. That was an example of that one in Ohio. There happened to be a buck, literally, 300 y- bedding 300 yards from that corn. And he was busting down the ridge and going and hit that. Um, but even on other tracks, uh, I've hunted private pieces that were 40 acres that just so happened to be the hot transition in the middle between four pieces of property um, of, of a bait transition. So I know Jimmy John is baiting down here, right? Um, and I'm hunting this 40 that's a square in the middle. I, you don't know where them deer are coming from. They, you know, they don't necessarily bed right next to that corn, especially if it's getting pressure. So they could be coming from miles away. Um, and that's really, you know, it's just not uncommon in uh, the Northwoods and then even in the Midwest for deer to just just go a long ways. Like, you know, man, I, I can't preface it enough, but like five miles is absolutely nothing to a deer i mean that's like as the crow it's like a you know a conversation like especially in the midwest i mean i don't know how far they'll run these ridges like like you said the older ones will probably stay in their spot but you'll get nomadic deer in the midwest that um like there's no keeping them i mean it's just like there's so much food everywhere and there's so many draws and so many so many timbers and stuff um that you know, that type of transition is not uncommon, especially for a subordinate buck who doesn't have a home range, who, who can't find a place. And these bucks can be good bucks, too, like, you know, big deer. And they just don't, you know, they haven't gotten old enough or dominant enough to, uh, to establish more of a, a core area. You know, we've had bucks leave and come back uh, years later, you know, when they, when they got a, you know, bigger set of balls on them. And then they could, you know, take on the big dog. So... Yeah, I, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but did I answer what you're asking? Yeah. Okay. Hey, yeah. Real quick, any other any questions? Anything that you guys are thinking based on the conversation we're having that you want us to touch on, or that you want Nathan or Cody or this anybody? Is, I got a good one, real quick, before we answer that. So this is something that I wanted to talk with Nathan too about, um, and uh, I kind of know Zach's take on this, and and I feel like I've over the years really influenced uh, Jake's uh, happenings, and and he's he's taken it and run with it big time. But so the question is, and I'm curious to hear Nathan's answer first, or actually I'll answer and then I want Nathan's rebuttal. But so the question is, does stand height matter when hunting in Virginia mountains versus flatland of the Midwest? And I'm going to come out, I'm going to say, and um, my personal opinion, even though, like I said, I don't have it versed, but I'm curious to hear how Nathan, um, I think where people... Where this question arises is it's not so much the height as long as you make sure it's you're right for the spot. Sometimes height can give you the advantage for thermals and wind direction, but if you're conscious to what's happening, there is no reason you can't hunt low anywhere you are. Like it, it's just like anything. Sometimes 
you can't get away hunting high. Sometimes you can't get away hunting a ridge. Sometimes you got to move down the ridge if the thermals are doing this. Or it's it's the same concept. So I, I personally don't believe that there's any um, there's any like uh, downfall to hunting low up here as long as you go about it the right way. Because even they because even in in Ohio I was running around with two sticks and it was really ridgy and I actually felt like sometimes being low was was kind of an advantage um for visual purposes the thermals was a little iffy to to play and there's a couple spots i wish that i wanted to hunt the bottoms that i could have got 20 feet high but i'm curious to hear your thoughts because i know that i know you you hunt all heights right Mm -hmm. so i guess in the question like does it really matter i mean like could let me ask you this so sorry, I'm I'm not even letting him talk. <laughs> but this, so if I told you, if I said, "All right, Nathan, I'm taking two sticks off of your setup," would you not kill a deer next year? Absolutely it, it, not. It wouldn't matter. That's what I'm saying. It, right there, that is my answer. So so, and that's what I was looking for. But now let let me let me. I just want you to elaborate. <laughs> I just knew that was going to be the answer because you because the knowledge of stand placement and what's happening with the winds and the thermals and the that's where the key is the key is not in the height of the stand and that's what i've been trying to tell people it's not in the height of the stand it's in the setup so you can you choose what tree you're going up for two reasons one for cover and the other for wind advantage and the way that i set up is whenever i come into a spot that i know that i want to hunt there's a few questions that I ask myself. One is, is if, am I in a spot that a big deer is going to show up during the daylight? A- am I close enough to where, uh, he, he, if he's bedded somewhere, am I close enough to that to take advantage of seeing him during the daylight? The se- uh, another thing that I want to know is, how is air movement going to affect me hunting this area? And as far as the specific tree, I don't care, you know, you might be better off in some spots sitting on the ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You just need to choose a tree or situate yourself on that tree that's going to give you cover. I mean, that's, you know, whenever I'm shed hunting and scouting during the winter, I will come into these big wide open flats and I'll see tree stands in the straightest, most unlimbed tree that they are there. And, and 20 yards from there, there'll be a tree that goes up and has nice limbs. It'll be like a double tree. Why didn't they go up that tree? You know, uh, but as far as stand height, I, I choose where I get in that tree uh, that's going to give me the best cover, whether it's 10 feet off the ground, 20 feet off the ground, or whatever. And that's where having those four gives you the opportunity. Right. If there's a branch up there 20 feet, you're getting to that branch so you can be tucked in. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I always relate it, and that's great. I always relate it like this. If you give, um, and Matt would appreciate this, but he's off there. He's he's messing around. <laughs> it's like if you give a good photographer one lens, he'll make he'll make do with that lens. Like, it's the people that are a little, little lenient and, like, just learning and not really understanding what's going on that need four different lenses. Well, you know it, like, al- it also goes back, not to interrupt you, but it, it goes back to, like, the idea of, like, be really, really good at one thing or be, or, I mean, be really, be great at one thing or be, like, you're kind of all over the place all the time. Sometimes you're really high, sometimes you're really low, whatever. It's, like, 
just See, you know. You know, yeah. Sorry, I'm. I just keep going. <laughs> you're good. I just I had a thought and I didn't. You know. This this is how it always is. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's just well, this, <laughs> this was the first year that I limited myself to two sticks. I found last year I was leaving some at the base of the tree a lot, um, and being up in the mountain, I was finding myself trying to tuck my body more in that lower canopy, or the younger saplings would be kind of like next to a tree, and that's where I'd set up, or even stuck down in the laurel with one stick. Um, I never last year found myself getting wishing busted you because of my height or wishing I had more sticks. Um, matter of fact, I think I used to set up above that lower canopy thinking that was really cool to be on top of them looking down, but looking back at the tree, you're sticking out. You're in the middle of, of the air there. So I, I really found a, two sticks benefited me and made me choose a better spot to hide me. Yeah, and, and a, good, a good point to make because you know just by this question i see that you know i get it all the time so much like just people they they're 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 teetering on the line of like okay well how many do i really need what you know i would say especially for you guys out here not everybody's a, a physical specimen like nathan like i mean and trekking up these mountains every day with that big pack and the whole setup really? like i'm just saying like some you know maybe the reducing of this gear you know i it'll keep you doing it longer like if i you know if i gave you you know a 60 pound pack and told you to hike up that mountain every day for the whole season and if you weren't used to it you know i mean even if it was everything you needed you you, you could fizzle out that's kind of the way i look at it. there's the whole concept of why i went to two sticks in the beginning it wasn't that it wasn't that i thought hunting low was an advantage it was that i wanted the advantage of being able to set up quicker and carry less stuff and be more tactical and just be more efficient like that was it and then i found out when doing that that there is tactical advantage to hunting low and you don't need um to be higher so i would encourage guys to at least try it you know get out there um and you know enjoy the benefits of the weight savings and see if it works for you i mean it, it obviously um I will say though, like so, as a as a warning label, we obviously are all advocates for hunting low. Um, but if if you're a guy who fidgets, like you you got to cut it out. Like you can't move. Like if you're hunting, like this year when I was hunting with Cody in North Dakota, um, you know, Cody saw me. I was filming my sets, and I was like, I was within standing on the ground where I could reach and touch the, my platform like this, and I had deer walking all around me. But you got to be still. Like it's that you can get away with stuff when you're 20 and 25 feet. You can move your head and turn and do all the things that you want to do and, you know, bounce your feet. If you're a fidgety guy, you can't do that at seven and eight and 10 feet and 12 feet. Like you got to sit still and you got to be when you're sitting low, you got to be you're hunting like you're hunting in the game the entire time. I mean, is that mm -hmm. would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. And, you know depends on the amount of cover you got around you you know obviously you're hunting low you're hunting spots that is going to give you that cover you know so i mean the, the cover is going to help you get away with some movements but yeah i mean obviously the lower you are the more in line you are with the, their vision you know but also around that 12 foot mark uh think about all your ladder stands i mean people kill deer out of ladder stands it's maybe not targeting a specific deer but they do kill deer out of ladder stands with a bow, with a rifle, with everything. And that shooting rail is like, like 14 feet on a ladder stand. So we're not a whole lot lower than that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the advantage is we can tuck ourselves into cover and actually hide ourselves. 
So I think that's the key is, is tucking yourself into the cover instead of getting above it Yep. in, in certain situations. Totally agree. Yeah, it's um, and, and make sure though, um, man, that, 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 uh, that trad though, that bow is a little tougher to mm-hmm. bury yourself in the cover than like you want. You know, yeah. I found that out real quick. Had a dandy buck come in um, that I was about to shoot, and I didn't. I'm I'm not used to anticipating for that hard string angle. Like I'm I'm just used to having a compound. So, you know, I got a, a, a deer essentially in my head, dead to rights at seven yards broadside, and I come to go to full draw, and I I'm hitting my string is hitting the limb, and I'm I'm tucked in like this. You know, I'm thinking I'm all you know out of sight, out of mind, but definitely pay pay mind to that too i mean you know not just for for anything always that's a good just random thought when you get up in your stand and you're hunting low that execution has to be flawless especially if you're close right so even if you got a compound run through that cycle one time make sure you're not going to bump the branch with your cam i've i have messed up on so many deer doing stupid stuff like that and if i and i think about it like dude if you would have just took your bow out of your bow holder and just went through the motions one time, it'd be a different season. So that's a that's a good point I wanted to make. Um, all right, this is a cool question, and I'm interested to hear this. Um, this is a training question, which we don't get none of those, but it says, as far as training goes, what is your current style? Can you touch on diet and training during season or off season maybe? And I'm curious, this brings up, like, do you do any specific training for the mountain or do you just hike a lot? <laughs> I eat everything I get my hands on, yeah. literally. And uh, I just, I love to walk. Yep. You know, uh, I spend a lot of time in the mountains. You know, if I've got a free day that I'm not having to do anything, that's where I'm at. Yep. Putting the miles on. I do a lot of squats and I like to, I get some walking in um, fair amount and try to scout some preseason as well. So you're, I mean, yeah, you're doing like, 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 uh, like ruck hikes aren't you like you're putting some weight on the back yeah either with my daughter or something in the frame pack yep. um yeah. i mean and that's where it prefaces too like if you're somebody who's not used to walking up hills like that like then mm-hmm. you know if you're not doing it every day i would definitely recommend doing a little bit of uh leg work or um you know things things of that You'll nature find out real quick if you prepped or not yeah um yeah I'm, I'm i'm a different i'm different i i literally i i do some sort of training every day uh i don't necessarily structure it toward hunting per se um i think we if anybody listens to the podcast we talked about this a little bit um a few times or a few episodes ago but i think i bet what ben, what i benefit from on the training aspect is more so just the um um i guess the the act of training versus actually what it gives me, um, you know, uh, being disciplined in the fact of keeping that makes me disciplined in the woods and, and when chasing deer, I think. So um, I always eat pretty clean, but even during the season, I wake up uh, every morning um, three hours before I have to get out and go work out. So it just, I mean, but at the same time, I'm never gassed in the woods, uh, if wherever that may be. So it's just something I... It's just a passion of mine. So I don't advocate working out before leaving to go to the woods at 4 a.m. Dude, it's the best. You know I mean? <laughs> it's the best. Um, I'm telling you. I'm more of a, a meat stick and fast break kind of guy. That's pretty much my diet during deer season. So yeah, uh, it's um, man. You know, it's see. I think I think you run cleaner when you eat cleaner, and when you when you train yourself, 
to get up that early and to do those things, I just think you have more more gas out there. Um, or me personally, it's my it's kind of my. What Cody won't tell you is his secret weapon on road hunting is Walmart rotisserie chickens. I do eat a lot of rotisserie chickens. <laughs> like yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So diet, right? So during season diet, I probably live on uh, Uncle Ben's rice packets and rotisserie chickens. Um, and the, yeah, exclusively, are, <laughs> like literally nothing else. Yeah, I mean, there's some some tuna in there and stuff like that too. But uh, and I'll eat them barehanded uh, and not care about the grease or the smell. Like a savage. So um, people get a kick out of that. Uh, so that we should we should just jump into that real quick. Thoughts as a collective group. Thoughts on um, clothing and scent control. Oh, there is a clothing question right here too. Well, uh, let's do scent control and then go into clothing. Personally. There's no way I'm going to get up in the woods, in the mountains, and not break a sweat. So I will try to make sure my clothes don't just smell like sweat. Uh, I'll wash them maybe weekly if I've been really busting my tail up in the mountains. But I'm going to try and play the wind as best I can because I'm not going to be scent free. There's no way. Nathan? Are you stinking up there when you get up there? Is it? No. No? Well, well I don't know. I don't sweat very <laughs> oh, much, yeah. to be honest Oh, you're, you're not a sweater. Okay. No. Yeah. But now... I'm probably a rare egg in this bunch because I, I do practice scent control. Yeah. I don't practice scent control because of me being in the tree. I do it because of the scent I'm leaving. You're going leaving going to in that there. Tree. That's fair. So what's your what's your main go to? Like what if or just give us a, a, a quick rundown of your scent um um uh, ritual or, or how you I never wear the clothes that I'm hunting in in the vehicle except for maybe my very base clothes. Sometimes I'll do that if it's really cold out. But uh, obviously I keep everything as clean as possible. The boots that I'm hunting in are only hunting boots. They're not to wear in my vehicle. I don't pump gas in them. I don't go shed hunting in them. They're kept in a tote by themselves, And uh, I just replace them often, you know. Oh, you oh like just new, yeah. new boots? Yeah, a every couple of years. Okay. Yeah. So what about, uh, I mean, you just wash just wash them with sentry stuff right yeah just yeah just this uh, unscented stuff unscented uh, detergent uh, my wife uses unscented detergent for all of our clothes so whenever i'm ready to wash some i just throw them in with those you know but uh and i hunt the wind yeah uh, so cody thoughts um scent yeah control? so i i um i'm not i don't do any scent control uh, i used to a lot i used to do a bunch um when I first started hunting because I thought I needed all this stuff and sprays and stuff. And now I wear, I do, I, I am the exact opposite of Nathan. No, I sweat like insane. I'm just like, I don't know if it's genetics or whatever it is, but like I do, I, I'll pour sweat no matter what I'm doing. Even if I'm not gassed, I just sweat. So, but I do wear primarily like 90% wool. So that stuff doesn't hold that odor and it dries out real quick. So like I recommend big time like wool base layers. Um, For sure. And yeah, and you know, so even so, if you are a sweaty guy and a and a stinky guy, like it's not not you know, I stink. I'll tell you, like it, when I'm if I'm hiking, if we go hike around these mountains all day, you'll smell me, like you will. Um, and that's where like you know, I I do make sure that uh, I wear clothes that can be washed and aired out super easily, like wool. Like wool boxers will not smell. Wool socks will not smell. And you can and it sounds. It might sound gross to some of you guys, but like you could take off wool socks after hiking all day, and you could you, you could hang them out to air dry, and they'll smell like a cool evening. Like like I mean they're 
wool is so awesome and it's such an underrated thing and um well a lot of people use it a lot more now but you know it's weight and stuff is it's got some negative connotations but um and even in hotter climates like they got lightweight breathable wool too so i rely on wool stuff but as far as my scent goes like i um you know i don't i do wash my clothes in when i wash them in scent free uh detergent just because, like I said, I think we use mostly just free and gentle type detergents yeah. anyway, like a, like just a, a, a Arm & Hammer or whatever. Uh, but I like, uh, so my body soap is, um, uh, it's like, it's got a fragrance to it. Um, my deodorant, it's not unscented. Uh, so I do, I do pay extra... I would say all my scent control goes into that spot, and I just over the years of so much time getting getting busted and so many failures, like just knowing where I need to be to make that scent not an option. And as far as entry and exit goes, I also think about that as well. Like, you know, just like Nathan, I'm not, I don't want to leave that scent, but the areas that I'm hunting, you know, and and even you know, I have a I have a principle or I have a um, I have a theory on that that these deer encounter those smells um and you know it's a process for them of whether they're associating that smell with danger or they're not so and even on big tracks of public land i hunt a lot of properties that are bordering hiking trails or like you know big pub like public ground uh, on like jake was talking about on the river it's literally on all trails so you can go on all trails and you could take the family out for a hike. There's there's constant scent from people in these areas. So I don't take as much stock in that hunting those type of places as I would maybe here to where like if nobody ever walked up that mountain and all of a sudden a buck comes into his bed and all of a sudden there's like this strange scent. It, it's maybe a probably way more polluted than I would pollute something, you know, or we like, you know, where we were hunting in Wisconsin. Yep. People walk those roads all the time. So, you know, and I obviously, you know, I practice things like um, Nathan mentioned it earlier. I'm not going to sit there and, and lay down and do, uh, uh, you know, leave angels at the base of my tree. I'm not going to mess with my gear there. I'll do that elsewhere. Try and, you know, come in. Uh, don't try and I try and avoid those uh, travel corridors that I'm my kill shot is and stuff like that. You know, all those type of general principles I'll, I'll adhere to. But as far as. Um, I guess real strict scent control. I don't really, I don't do much of it. Um, well, so paying attention to how you're getting into your is, spot. Yeah, is, that that is scent yeah. control, I suppose. Uh, even sense. how you, you know, once you're within sight of your stand, you know how the deer are going to move yeah. through those type of areas. So just avoid those areas. And even I take advantage of logs a lot of times. You yeah. know, walk on top of the log to get to where you're getting to. Uh, or yeah, th- and. In the cricks too, like yeah, in the Midwest. Cricks, yeah. In the Midwest, uh, I use that tactic all all the time. If there's a crick bed I can walk through, like the entire way, I'll, I'll walk through it. Like it's just so you're just you're out of sight, out of mind. You're sensed down in there, you know. Um, and it's just it's the way to go. So I definitely um, paying attention to your enter and, ex- and and even exit strategies too. Like a lot of times, and I'd almost imagine it'd be the same here. So. Um, you know, if you're sitting there and you're hunting a buck and you know where he's bedded and he moves late on you and he's moving, like, you know, the the right way to slip out of there, too, without, you know, putting a lot of pressure on that spot is, is important as well. So mm-hmm. I think um, a takeaway then, because obviously we have a guy who's, you know, more serious on scent control and not is like 
the, the unifying aspect of that is to not be complacent. Whether you're a scent control guy or not a scent control guy, if you go into the woods with the expectation that like, oh, I can beat them with this or, you know, like I, maybe I'm good enough with my scent control that I can give them more wind, you're not. You're, 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 you're never going to beat their nose, like no matter how good you are. Um, you know, you're, you're always putting off some kind of scent. You know, Nathan has just given himself maybe a little extra edge by doing what he's doing. But he and Cody and myself and Zach are all taking the same approach, which is being as cautious as we possibly can to and giving ourselves as much of an advantage as possible, you know, while making that deer feel like they have the advantage. We're not going to just go leave scent purposefully yeah even if you're even if we're stinking you know we're not going we're not going somewhere where we think our stink is going to get us busted yeah um okay here's a here's an interesting one and i have a um do y'all ever hunt in pairs like two people hunting the same area uh are you just a straight up lone wolf nathan um, or uh, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah straight up lone okay wolf, yeah um my dad and I hit the mountain a uh, fair amount, but we may be nowhere near each other or, or might approach similarly and maybe split up 100 yards or something. But for the most part, we're either pretty close together, hunting the same deer, or totally separate. I mean, we did, Cody and I did some pair hunting last year. Um, I mean, we obviously, we're not, I would say, like... That was a little different. I, I, that was I was going to get to that. Yeah, okay. I think I was going to get to that. So, like, I, I think that what I'm getting at is like our, my, my thought process is if I'm going to hunt with somebody in a pair and, and Chris and I, um, guy behind the photo camera, he and I hunt public quite a bit and we do this as well is like, if I'm going into a piece of public and I'm hunting with a buddy, that's another set of eyes for us to figure out where they actually are. Like when Cody and I were hunting in Wisconsin or Dakota or wherever, we're hunting separate sides of the public, but we're looking for the same thing. And we're talking about what we're seeing and what we're dealing with. Chris and I do exactly the same thing. And the idea there is, I mean, you know, two sets of eyes are better than one. And if you can progressively hone in, you know, like when we were hunting in North Dakota, Cody was hunting one side of that farm and I was hunting the other side of that farm. And uh, Cody was seeing more deer than I was seeing. We were both on bucks and deer and Cody had to leave early. And I went in and ended up without even realizing that I was where he was, he had been sitting because we weren't sharing waypoints. We were just talking about what we were seeing. I ended up shooting my buck within, I don't know, 100 yards or 200 yards of, like, where he had been kind of, like, scouting and seeing stuff. Um, you know, so it, I think the pair game can be really helpful for you if you're if you're using it to your advantage. If you're both hunting 100 yards from each other, you know, unless it's so thick and maybe you're in a laurel thicket where you can't see that far, I, I think it gives you a lot of advantages to properties. Yeah, you know, break as them a down. team, though, not yeah, not individually. Not just both going after it, kind of as a team approach to maybe one specific deer. Yeah. Would you agree? Um, yeah, I think there's a couple different ways to. I, I I've always primarily been, you know, a lone wolf myself too. I think that was just coming up that way. It was kind of, you know, just you didn't really talk about what you were seeing, and you went your own way, and and it was just kind of like that's how it was. Um, where I get scared with pear hunting is I just don't, I know what I know and I don't know if, if the other guy really has that experience or that know-how. So I always get scared of like, uh, you know, it throwing a wrench in the works. Like, you know, anytime you have excess scent, excess people, like just anything more than you need, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. So that's a fact. 
Now, like, you know, just like I, I, I think Nathan would probably, if I tagged on his hip the whole way, you know, and, and while he scouted the route, like, it's, I'm just leaving double the tracks, I'm leaving double the scent, and then if I'm setting up a ridge over, I'm leave. I'm 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 hurting his chance by 50%. Just me being there, because it's more scent going down the ridge, swirling around. So there is a hard disadvantage. On the other side of things, like what Jake and I were doing, um, you know, there's also strategy and tactic into dissecting areas in a group format. I think like so. I think it's super beneficial to share information and especially when you know different people have different goals and stuff but we were looking we were taking a bunch of ground and we were looking to eliminate ground as fast as humanly possible and then both go hunting solo right so like typically you know we were hunting different pieces at the same time sharing intel just kind of conversing and and game planning together which can be super helpful you know, like if, if Nathan said, okay, I'm going to go hit that, that ridge I've been looking at all day. And you know that ridge that we drove by 10 minutes ago? Why don't you go up and hit that ridge? And then we start collectively scouting, like, this mountainous region. I would consider that in a way. I mean, we're kind of hunting as pairs, like, uh, tactically, not together, though. So I think there's there's things to 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 take advantage on. But the worst thing I think you can do is is give yourself more, like, you know, you're just, you're putting yourself in a, in a worse spot. Now, it's different when you're hunting with somebody and, like, you got to – if you guys are, you know, like you and your dad, you're probably on the same wavelength, you know. I mean, yeah. and it's more of an enjoyable thing. Like, you know, it's, it's a camaraderie thing. Like, you know. Um, yeah, no, I got places where it's pretty much just me going yeah, in after a yeah. specific deer, and he and he does too. But, yep. um, I mean, there was one kind of swampy, nasty thicket, and we were trying to come in from both sides um, but with with the right wind and everything and kind of like you said each have a set of eyes and see what's going on going into that thicket and all um and i yeah probably each one of us has a 50 percent less chance than we would have had solo but together I, it doubles yeah, it doubles it the, doubles your the intel. group's intel yeah. and everything leading into that so yep. it's just something to think about well i mean same thing like i hunted that wisconsin <laughs> property before cody did and i went in there and like and was like, hey, this might be a place. Like, I, I walked that whole thing and then shared waypoints with Cody off of off of on X. And, um, you know, he was able to be like, oh, this is a property I might actually want to consider. And then he went and scouted it and hunted it himself. But, you know, because one of us already been there, it kind of narrowed down. Like, you know, you can cut out this X part of the property or whatnot. You know, it might simplify it for, for your buddy to an extent. Yeah, and more so, I think that more so eliminating other pieces and then you know allowing yourself to focus on one chunk versus being spread thin because that's a recipe for disaster um well do you think we should get into the mapping segment now i think yeah i, think I mean i think can. we had a bunch of questions let's let's open it up and see if we got any specific questions maybe for a couple right yeah anything, anything to add i mean i know we didn't get probably to everyone but i think we we popped around pretty good um anybody with a specific question Has what now? Yeah. Well, to me, that I mean, that's a compounding terrain feature, yeah. you know. There. I would let uh, the air movement determine where I set up on it and uh, where I expected the deer to be moving through and how they would use it. You know, I mean, 
you know, late morning, that, that would be a good spot to catch a cruising buck because, you know, obviously he's going to be taking advantage of rising thermals in a spot like that, you know, and uh, you might not would see him there uh, earlier than that, you know, because of the dropping thermals, you know, but uh, that air movement dictates where I set up everywhere I set up. You know, I'm considering uh, prevailing air movement as well as uh, uh, thermals, you know, what they're going to be doing. And, and what time I expect the deer to be coming through, too. Another question from this one. So are you, after you're set, are you getting down and moving and looking for another spot to set up in the mountain? Uh, early season, yes. Yeah, early season, I'm scouting with a stand on my back because I'm trying to find where those bucks uh, are isolated themselves to. No, no. Actually, what I uh, really, really like to do is to uh, scout my way in midday, pop up a tree, and of course everything has to be right because uh, if you do too much scouting, then, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. But basically what I'm doing is I'm setting myself up for the next morning. Observation. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm scouting my way in, looking at the sign, and most times I'm already familiar with the area, so I, if I encounter a sign, I kind of already know where I feel like the deer is going to be, you know, and I'll set up for that, and uh, then I'll, I'll hunt it the next morning. And if I feel like that I haven't put enough time in there, then I, I may hunt another evening or two. But chances are, if, if I just don't have the warm and fuzzies uh, uh, midday next day, I'm scouting my way on back into another spot. and. And more times than not, within three or four days, I've killed a deer. So, and, and that's generally how I hunt mostly out of state. Yeah, I just I just work my way back. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't get. I wouldn't get below it because then, then you're screwed. When. Well, but then if he gets there after the sun's risen, well, then it's rising. Well, I think what he's. I mean, I don't want to jump into Nathan's question here, but basically, like what you're saying is like if he's bedded down there and he's running this way and this way, and you got all these spots to sit, like how do you know? Like I, I think the answer is simple, and it's just like if you know where he's going, then, you know. I mean, like this ridge here, you've got that wind blowing back over this yeah. way. I guarantee you, he's, whenever he comes through here, he's going to be just under the top right there. So, 
if, if he's traveling this direction here, you have the wind coming across this way. I mean, that's actually an excellent spot, in my opinion, because you have great access from the bottom. Your ther early morning thermals is dropping down. And if you're set up right, it shouldn't matter what the thermals are doing because by the time he gets to where it matters, he should be coming off that side of the hill blowing blood everywhere, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah. To, you almost have to uh, sacrifice, like you guys were talking about earlier. Like your wind is going to change at a certain point, and it may still be good at that that one spot where you can kill him. But if he goes any further, or if it's a deer that you don't want to shoot, yeah, you're, the gig's up because the, the the wind may be good, and you guys have seen it. You know, recording this, it blew every which way. Yeah. It's sitting here. Um, it may be good, but then it stops for a minute, and then your thermals kick up the hill. Yeah. I usually. So you have you have the, uh, the dominant wind going this way, and the, and you're sitting below it. You know, just like we would be here. You're hung below the the, the top of the wind right yeah. here, and everything's good. But then you get a, a still spot, and the and the sun's hitting it just right, and it sucks back up, and then there you are. You're you're done. <coughs> yeah, I mean, there's it, there's no way to avoid that though. I yeah, mean, like it, it's, it's I, I think observation. I think that depends. Oh, if, well, see, that's the thing, though. But you know what wind you, you got? So you're saying the wind is, is – you he, got a good wind. He's saying basically, like, because of the variability of where the – like, the timing he's about which the, He's talking about the creep. He's talking about getting busted by the creep of thermals going up against what the wind is actually doing. Yeah. yeah. blowing off you know well how about this what about waiting till you get the other wind direction so you got the lift and the prevailing wind see and not hunting it mm -hmm. on that back wind because that's your only foolproof plan well what i was going to say was i we have a i have a spot like that in north carolina that i hunt where those deer hit they they enter that bedding area at a very like different different times of the season they enter the bedding area at different times so like i i always try to hunt as close to the bedding as i can so i'm factoring for that wind and that thermal specifically and then i'll, I'll do observation sits before i go and push in there so that i know the time of day that i think that they're they're coming in there which means if it's if it's early morning if those deer are hitting that bedding right at like 7:15, i know i can beat them on that on that thermal rise as long as the wind isn't hard like if it's a hard wind then it might be overpowering your thermal but if it's See, what you're talking about is trying to predict the unpredictable and, and you really can't it's, it's, like that's the thing you know I, and that's why i ask him you know i mean I, it may just be one of those things you just have to find that little niche of a spot that yeah because it seems like more than not i'll find that spot but like last year i set up on like you were talking about right in between two pockets of bed areas and they cruise it and there's a fence gap right there they jump but 
like I have the wind and it's blowing like this to me, and I'm throwing, and I, but I can tell he busted me and he's up above me, and I'm like, well, so what do you think? What do you think, Nathan? What, what would you? I started throwing milkweed. It was sucked down towards the creek, and then some of it actually made it through the brush, and I seen it. It was sucking back up like a boomerang, like a porcupine, going right up to where that fence crossing was. So some places are just impossible to hunt. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way that it is. And yeah. that was how your Ohio spot was too, wasn't it? Well, yeah, and th that's where I, I think it's super important to to take notes of those things, and as you encounter like geographical features like that and you experience those you can use that and play it back because like like th there's literally that is an unpredictable thing because for all you know like we all know that the wind swirls all the time but you could i mean you're trying to factor in let's say you got three hours of, of movement time you got you know wind speed right and then you got like all that like for and odds are it'll happen, but for that, the time that buck's coming in to that wind to let up and then you get that creep is it, very likely, but it's also, it's, it, it could be very unlikely. So maybe this is where I, like in the Midwest, um, we don't have these hills, but we have hard bluffs and some of them are very high. So what I'll do in those situations is I'll, like, like you just said, you've seen what the thermals were doing and then I'll try and reserve that spot for a more consistent wind day you know i mean or and sometimes you know most of the time you get those those creeping thermals when the wind subsides now i don't know what it does in the mountains are there like maybe if there's days that um are just more consistent flow you'd have a better opportunity but i've encountered a bunch of spots where i just couldn't figure out like like you just can't like mm -hmm. it Did you try it? I did, but I, I didn't get up in a tree and do it. Okay, see? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, conditions and... Mm -hmm. Side. Yeah, well, it just depends on the scenario. Sometimes I'll be on the top side. Sometimes I'll be on the bottom side. It just it depends on where the uh, I feel like the deer are coming from, where I expect them to be. There's just so many factors that you know. To me, there's not a stencil that fits everything. And, and really and truly, the best hunters are the best guessers uh, with uh, certain fundamentals that that never change. Which is it, whenever you walk into a spot, uh, like I said earlier, the things that you should you know be aware of is how uh, air movement is going to affect that hunt. And sometimes you don't know until you actually hunt it. And um, you just got to be standing there, you know, during that time. So I, that that would be the best way I could answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, yeah. so that's the thing, and that's where I, what I would do, if I were you, I would go into that spot, and I would get up in a tree, and I would test the theory and see if it does the same thing that it did when you were hunting it that one day, and if that happens again, I'd go hunt that thing, because you might have it figured out, and that's what I mean about, there's spots where I hunt in bluff country that I know... I'm, I, I need to hunt the wrong wind. Like, there's a logging road that comes up this cut between two giant bluffs 
You would anybody who looked at it and seen where the trails were going or scouted it would say, "Oh, you need a north wind for sure." And and you cannot, you will get cracked every day. You need to hunt it on a south. And it's because there's this drastic overflow of 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 pullback down that long drastic slope. So now I hunted on south wind and I'm invincible every time. And I never even think about it. Oh yeah, yeah, on paper it's completely wrong, you know. And even when you're sitting in the tree, you can feel the wind on the back of your neck looking at the trail. But it it um it's it's this giant gaping crack that just like just funnels the wind. Even with a good dist blow on the wind, it just like gets this way and then just and you watch the milkweed do it. Like it'll just go and then like it just like like and then you'll watch it go all the way down because you can see hundreds and hundreds of yards. So I you know and that's where I think it's you know we talk about the importance of carrying the wind check and the milkweed around because if you're dropping that especially up in these hills. Um, and that's where, you know, getting higher in the tree might help you or getting lower in the tree. If you can get lower and, and, and tuck down near a, near a big crack, like let's say you're going on that shelf and all of a sudden there's this big washout. If you get two feet off the ground right in front of that washout, I don't think you'll get that creep. I think that washout will overpower your scent and pull it down there versus let's say you found an optimal tree with a bunch of cover 20 feet up on the top side. And, you know, maybe you'll get more lift, more cover. Like, you know, that's where the, situ the situation or the scenario can dictate, too, I think, how you can play that. But the more important thing is what you did. You know what's happening. So now you just got to try different things to beat it, you know. Um, and like you said, it's a matter of just guess and check. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's, it's trial and error. You know, you get busted and, you know, so try something different. As and long as you learn from it and make notes of it, yeah, move yeah. on. Um, oh, we got to go to uh, mapping. Okay. All right. Uh, so we'll wrap this up. Yeah, we'll wrap this up. Well, I guess that's it. That's a wrap. Yep, that's a wrap on the podcast, gents. Okay, uh, thanks everybody. Uh, we're gonna. I'm just. We'll take a just a, a minute. Yeah, we're just gonna turn this off, and then we're gonna do a quick update or kind of breakdown on what we're doing with um, like what we think is valuable about mapping. You know, here both here in the mountains, and then in the experiences that we have. Actually, we should probably record that too. Yeah, you want to record that? Um, so we'll do that, and then. Uh, and then we're going to go right from that to oh, the... Oh, we didn't hit record. I got it. We got to start over. <laughs> well, there you have it. That was the full unedited conversation between the Roadshow crew and myself at the Virginia Roadshow. I hope you guys got some good information from it. Don't forget, we have four more shows this year. So if you're thinking about getting one of these events, I strongly suggest that you hop on the website and check out which one's closest to you. It's a great opportunity to learn new tactics from all sorts of different speakers and get all your questions answered, whether they're gear questions, deer questions, tactic questions, all that stuff. If you already got a setup, bring it, and we'll help you optimize that thing. I look forward to next week's episode, and we'll bring to you our Deep South Q&A edition from Birmingham, Alabama. You're not going to want to miss that one. And with that... Everybody remember, do hard shit. It's good for you. See you next week.